Chapter Three. Turf Loop. I babysat you, but now you are boss. I washed your diapers, but now I must go to hell. I saved you from a pool, but you shoot my child. I love you to earn your hate. I hosted you and lost my home. I became a human being to you. Now I am an animal. I trusted your God, and it stole my land. Genuami Farisani. When Cyril arrived at the Turfloop campus of the University of the North in early 1972, he was joining a small group of Black South Africans to reinforce racial segregation and advance retribalization. The NP government had created universities to cater for the country's ethnic minorities, but they were small institutions with a limited intake. English and white Afrikaans-speaking students enjoyed access to large and well-resourced universities on substantial campuses, in which a full arts, science, and social science curriculum was taught, in accordance with the twin logics of ethnic separatism and inequitable allocation. The government established five colleges, known as tribal colleges, or ironically as bush colleges, to cater for non-whites. Students designated Asian or Indian attended the moderately resourced University of Durban-Westville (UDW). Those designated coloured attended the University of the Western Cape (UWC) in Belleville, to the northeast of Cape Town. These colleges were smaller, less well-equipped. And narrower in their curriculums than their white counterparts. At the bottom of the resource ladder were universities for Africans. The University of Fort Hare in the Eastern Cape, alma mater of a generation's senior ANC, IFP, and PAC leaders, including Nelson Mandela and Governor Mbeki, was the most prestigious African institution, fed by elite missionary schools. Fort Hare managed partly to resist the government's agenda of ethnic homogenisation. And continued to recruit from across the country and beyond. The University of Zululand, by contrast, had an entirely Zulu student body. The University of the North was a more curious creation. At its foundation in 1960, it was designed to cater for the wide variety of ethnic groups: Pierre Pujol, Venda, Tswana, Pedi, and Sutu, to be found in the north of the country. In 1970, the five black colleges were granted autonomy in terms of a series of acts, mandating them for the first time to grant degrees and diplomas. These acts of parliament granted a second kind of autonomy by specifying that they were not the property of or incorporated into the Bantu stands within which they might be located. Nevertheless, each university was linked to its own Bantu or Own Affairs Department of Education, whose purposes included the provision of an education appropriate to the different ethnic groups and their proper expectations. When Cyril began his education at the University of the North, these universities were still small, but in a process of rapid expansion. Turfloop accommodated 810 students in 1970, 901 in 1971. And 1146 by the time of his arrival in 1972, UWC and Zululand were of a similar size, while UDW was already around twice as large. To put this expansion into perspective, however, the University of the North and Zululand awarded less than a hundred degrees each in 1972, and about the same number of diplomas. 
Fort Hare, UDW and UWC together awarded fewer than 400 degrees to black students. Like Cyril, most Bush College students came from stable, if not affluent, families, in which at least one member was in formal employment. Typically, a parent might work for the state or a Bantustan as a teacher, preacher or nurse. Ramaphosa's university education was funded not by his parents, but by a bursary, one of many for which he applied the previous year, and by a loan from Standard Bank. Government had hoped the new university's graduates would go on to become productive racial and ethnic elites, staffing the Bantustan governments and their own affairs departments. In reality, the Bush colleges profoundly angered most of their student bodies and resulted in a new generation of radicalized activists. In retrospect, it's easy to see why. The racial domination evident outside university life was simply reproduced within it. The universities were dominated by an Afrikaner bureaucracy at the level of the rectorate, council and senate. The academic staff, especially at senior levels, was overwhelmingly white. Of the 120 professors in the five colleges, 111 were white. Likewise, 176 out of 188 senior lecturers. In later years, some exceptional teaching staff chose to work in these colleges out of political commitment, particularly at UWC and UDW. But the vast majority of the staff in the 1970s had failed to secure jobs in more prestigious white universities. Teaching methods were formal and staff-student relations tended to be distant and racialized. The content and character of the education rankled with students. The campuses were located away from urban centers and white areas. The syllabi were still dominated by University of South Africa, UNISA, study guides. Rote learning and regurgitation were the key teaching methodologies and the expectations of educators were largely at the low levels set by the own affairs and Bantu education departments. Anything considered controversial or political, for example, any discussion of the ANC, was removed from the teaching program, which was avowedly politically neutral. It was unsurprising in such circumstances that many students on the black campuses would become politically radicalized. Yet, these black students were not allowed to affiliate to the National Union of South African Students, NUSAS. The Council of the University of the North turned down an application by the SRC to affiliate in 1968. NUSAS was to remain confined to the white and liberal campuses, and in 1969, the South African Students' Organization, SASA, was formed with a broad black consciousness ideology. This breakaway from the perceived paternalism of NUSAS was celebrated. In the famous slogan of the time, Black man, you're on your own. By 1972, Sasso was an emerging force in all of the Bush colleges and the primary vehicle for political mobilization of the students, although there were many other organizations at play, all vying for representation on the Student Representatives Council, SRC, the highest representative body in any student community. Cyril was studying towards a law degree. He may have been drawn to the theatrical aspects of the law and by the opportunity it offered him to demonstrate his public speaking accomplishments. Study of the law may have held out the prospect of new understanding and leverage in a world dominated by legally institutionalized racism 
He may even have been influenced by his keen watching of courtroom scenes in the Hollywood movies he so loved, and by his reading of detective novels. More prosaically, a legal training offered the possibility of a career, and it was one of the few areas in which a black man could become a successful professional. For Cyril's and Pafuli classmates, at least, the law was a profession of choice. Cyril's turfler contemporary, Frank Ciccani, remembers being encouraged to study law as early as primary school by his father, although he decided instead to read applied mathematics and physics. Cyril's policeman father would likewise have seen a career in the law as a major advance for his son. Only two months after Cyril's arrival at Turfler, the university, and very soon politics across the black campuses, was turned upside down by a single speech. At the graduation ceremony of the university on the 29th of April 1972, Ongopozi Ramatibi Tiro, a former SRC president who was studying for a diploma at the university, launched a breathtaking attack on the segregated education system. Tiro was a powerful orator and an original thinker. He had preceded Cyril's arrival at Turfloop by three years. The graduating class asked Tiro to represent them at the graduation ceremony. Tiro was no stranger to politics. Indeed, his short life was a compressed history of relentless political struggle. He was born on the 9th of November 1945 in the small village of Dinokana in the northwest of South Africa. When his primary school was closed down by strikes against the imposition of passes for women, Tiro worked as a child laborer on a manganese mine. He began high school in Soweto, but after arrest for failure to produce a pass, he was forced to finish his schooling in Mafikeng. His career at the University of the North had been academically sound, but his life was dominated by political debate and organization. As he rose to deliver his oration in the hall, he looked down upon an audience that was predominantly white. Towards the front of the hall were members of the council and senate, the white professors and senior lecturers and other invited guests. At the back of the hall were parents of the graduating students. Some of them were forced to wait outside the hall, unable to see or hear the proceedings properly. Such treatment was conventional at this time, like Captain Madenza's treatment of white visitors at the Chief's Kraal in Sibasa, and would have gone quite unnoticed by the university grandees. Tiro shattered the illusion that this racial injustice was part of a natural order of things. If there had to be a black university, he asked, why did its council have to be dominated by white outsiders? With building anger, he next complained about the treatment of black parents. Our parents have come all the way from their homes only to be locked outside. We are told the hall is full. I do not accept that there is no accommodation for them. Front seats are given to people who cannot even cheer us. My father is seated there at the back. My dear people, shall we ever get a fair deal in this land, the land of our fathers? Tiro then told the graduating students not to allow themselves to become instruments for the perpetuation of apartheid. He likened the leaders of Bantustans to bolts of the same machine which is crushing us, and argued that whites would never permit true Bantustan autonomy. Do you think that the white minority can willingly commit political suicide by creating numerous states which might turn out to be hostile in future? We black graduates, by virtue of our age and academic standing, are being called upon to greater responsibilities in the liberation of our people. With an excusable rhetorical excess, Tiro continued, Let the Lord be praised, for the day shall come when all men shall be free to breathe the air of freedom, and when that day shall come no man, no matter how many tanks he has, 
shall reverse the course of events. The speech shocked and astonished his listeners. The university authorities were outraged. A graduation ceremony is the most formal event in the calendar of a university, and prominent representatives of the establishment were present as guests. Roel Causer, who was later to become chairman of Nedbank, was in the hall on that day as a member of the Student Choral Society. He recalls that speakers at graduation were always custodians of the ideology of the time. Black universities would almost always find a speaker such as a homeland leader. Indeed, I remember that either that year or the year before, the keynote speech was delivered by the leader of the Leboa homeland, an old school inspector who virtually offered a justification of Bantu education. The students, by contrast, were jubilant. Tiro was articulating opinions that were held by most of the student body, opinions they had never dared to voice in a public venue, let alone in the setting of a graduation. The university responded to this challenge with an immediate expulsion of Tiro from campus. His departing remark to Professor J. L. Bosoff, rector of the university, as he was driven away from the campus, was another rhetorical flourish. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. The rest of what was to be Tiro's short life was devoted to political mobilization and to the development of new ideas in the black consciousness movement. He escaped the paralysis that gripped those of his peers who were in thrall to the leadership of Steve Biko, and he highlighted the intellectual and political limitations of Biko's idealist philosophy. He toured the black campuses, speaking on one occasion at Fort Hare, where black consciousness thinking had been sharpened by its contestation with continuing Congress and Marxist traditions. Tiro advanced a theory of African communalism that tried to release black consciousness from its self-imposed prison of interiority and self-discovery. Drawing on wider streams in African post-liberation thinking, in particular Nyerere's African socialism and Kenneth Gwanda's humanism, he was seeking a uniquely African politics of socialism. He became a full-time professional organizer for Sasso in 1973 and president of the Southern African Students' Movement, in a message read out at the 5th Sasso General Students' Council, Tiro wrote, No struggle can come to an end without casualties. Two weeks later, on the 1st of February 1974, he was killed by a parcel bomb. Although he had taken refuge in Botswana, he was no longer beyond the reach of apartheid security forces now willing to carry out cross-border assassinations. The government refused permission for Tiro's body to be buried at his home, and it was only in 1998 that his remains were finally laid to rest in Dinokana village. The students' reaction to Tiro's expulsion in 1972 was immediate. SRC President Aubrey Mokwena, later an ANC Member of Parliament, called a mass meeting at which students resolved to boycott lectures and stage a sit-in. The university responded with the demand that students sign a declaration of orderly behavior or leave the campus, a demand the students ignored. The university then closed the kitchens and threw the entire student body off the campus, telling them they would have to reapply for admission. At this stage, the national organization of SASO began to mobilize. Branches on black campuses across the country organized solidarity protests, Lectures were boycotted at UWC and Natal Medical School 
and a resolution was passed by the National Sasso Executive that all students should escalate the struggle, boycott lectures and even force their universities to close down. Mass meetings of students and their parents took place at Fort Hare, UWC, Zululand and other black colleges and a consensus emerged that there were common grievances across the black campuses. The 1972 Sasso Conference involved heated debate about the implications of the protest and the future direction of student politics. Barney Pijana remembers young firebrand Keith Mokwapi shouting the slogan, Kill the Boer! as part of a more general expression of discontent with the conservatism that continued to characterize Sasso policy. On some campuses, particularly Fort Hare, many students became interested once again in the ANC. Over the coming year, police harassment of student activists was to increase and Barney Pijana was to be placed under house arrest. When the University of the North reopened after Tiro's expulsion, combative university authorities banned Sasso on campus and excluded more than 20 students. Cyril, who had been too junior to play any significant role in the protests, was readmitted. Yet he was very quickly to become a prominent figure in student politics. When he had arrived in early 1972, there was already no doubt among his friends that he hoped to become president of the SRC. Royal Causa, who had been studying psychology, history and the African languages for three years when Ramaphosa arrived, remembers Cyril as a natural politician who was campaigning from the moment of his arrival. Initially, Cyril's political energies were channeled through the student Christian movement, of which he had been an active member at school. This was a telling choice of vehicle. Here at the university, the SCM, was an organization widely held in contempt. For many of his contemporaries, it was viewed as a sellout organization, in part because SCM's emphasis on the gospel of individual salvation seemed disconnected from everyday political and economic struggle. Indeed, the history of the missionary churches was understood by many radical students as a history of exploitation. Europeans had taken Africans' lands in exchange for the Bible, a text designed to render them meek and subservient in the face of their exploitation. Frank Shikani, later to become President Thabo Mbeki's top government official, was Cyril's immediate contemporary and colleague in the Turf Loop SCM. The year before he arrived at university, he had experienced the growing conflict between critics and defenders of a conventional Christian beliefs at his high school in Orlando. Like Cyril, he was a member of his school's SCM and active in evangelical work at school and in the wider community. By 1971, he recalls, the clash between Christian students and other students reached a violent level. Called upon to help mediate between fighting students, Shikani steered a cautious middle course, very close to that defended by Ramaphosa at the time. Yes, the Bible had no doubt been used to dispossess Africans of their land and to brainwash them to accept their oppression. On the other hand, this use of the Bible was itself an abuse, rather than reflecting the fundamental meaning that the book expressed. The task, he explained to his peers, was to reread the Bible, reclaim it, and then turn it against the oppressors. But the isolation of the SCM had gone too far at Turflup for such mediation, and when Shikani and Ramaphosa arrived, it had already been banned from the campus by a decision of the student body. The students believed Christianity was a religion of the oppressor, of the white man, 
and therefore worse than irrelevant for them. SEM members were obliged to worship furtively, gathering together in the fields close by the campus or hiding illegally in the lecture theatres after being let in by sympathetic teachers without the knowledge of other students. Shikani was frustrated by the state of affairs and by the seeming acquiescence of the SCM leadership in it. Indeed, he found them to have willingly adopted a state of persecution which they viewed as part of their necessary withdrawal from the unchristian political activity elsewhere on campus. The SCM had also been handicapped by the manner of its creation. The General Secretary of an established white body called the Student Christian Association, SCA, Graham McIntosh, had organized Christian movements, known as SCM, on the black campuses as well as in some high schools. The SCA remained an organization for white students, whereas the SCM was the organization for black campuses. A competing movement, the University Christian Movement, UCM, insisted on racial integration, and for this reason, it had the support of the Sasso leadership and many of the black consciousness radicals. However, university administrators banned UCM, and it failed for this reason to gain much of a foothold on any campus. Rather than adopting the purest position of supporting UCM and turning its back on SCM, Ramaphosa moved with great speed to control and then transform the more conservative movement's branch. He immediately and eloquently argued for a new role for Christians on campus and won over enough doubters, together with like-thinking Christians like Shikani, to secure rapid election as SCM chairman. With the help of Shikani, he then set about restructuring the organization. He produced a new constitution, and his fellow members were obliged to debate its contents endlessly. In this constitution, Cyril inserted a doctrinal basis section that explicitly repudiated racism and the unjust system of apartheid. Cyril's trademark success in creating a new institution was based on meticulous drafting of its constitution, careful strategic planning, and relentless persuasiveness in public and private meetings. While Cyril remade the organization, Shikani chaired Evangelical Fellowship, a body responsible for evangelical work in the surrounding communities, an organization very much along the lines of Ramaphosa's Beko, in a wide radius around the school, the fellowship set about systematically visiting one school every week. We did not know about management by objectives in those days, recalls Shikani, but the principle was the same. We measured our progress according to a carefully prepared set of targets. After the university banned the organization from the student campus, Cyril was active in the Sasso branch that was established in Turf Loop. He was not immediately vocal on this wider stage. Barney Pichana, National Secretary-General of Sasso in 1972, recalls Cyril as not a great presence and rather a quiet person. He did not strike me as someone who would become what he is today. All the same, Cyril became a powerful actor in the politics of the university because he was able to bridge two kinds of divide. First, his religious commitment allowed him to retain a constituency of believers, it was an inescapable fact forgotten by radicals that almost all of the students on a campus like Turfloop were or had been active members of Christian organizations. There was no future in frontally attacking so fundamental a part of people's intellectual and emotional makeup. National leaders like Pijana, who was later ordained as an Anglican priest, believed that the problem with the churches was that they were missing the boat and not reflecting the mood of the people. For this reason, Sasso took upon itself the role of conscientizing Christians so as to make them aware of the limits of their movements. 
The organization gave special emphasis to working with rather than against ministers of religion in order to try to turn them into the instruments of political organization, and in such activity, Cyril was peerlessly effective. Cyril was also a bridge builder in that he was able to straddle the rural and urban worlds, carrying conviction with more conservative students brought up in the north as well as the politically radicalized young people from the south. According to Frank Shikani, this was the most organizationally obstructive division on the campus at the time. On the one hand, students from Soweto tended to be highly politicized and conscientized by the black consciousness movement in their schools. The university authorities perceived these students as political problem cases. On the other hand, there were students from the north, socially and politically conservative, who were viewed by the university authorities as lovely Christians. For Shikani, Ramaphosa was a quintessential Soweto youngster, a sophisticated product of its distinctive social and political environment who could engage in the language of the township youth. Yet, as a result of the two years he had passed in Sibasa, his humility, his evangelical experience and his unwillingness to condemn others as backward or rural, Cyril was able to reach out to a wider constituency of students from the north. Even today, he will first greet an acquaintance who comes from a rural and conservative background in the north quite unaffectedly using local dialects and phrases. While Cyril built up and politicized the SCM, it nevertheless remained less subject to harassment than non-Christian student organizations and soon became the largest vehicle for political activity on campus. Other political formations were dominated by the backstabbing machinations and rhetorical fancies of their student leaderships, whereas Cyril made the SCM genuinely popular using film shows and informal humor to pack students into social events that would have subtle political objectives. In 1973, a superficial calm prevailed on the campus. Beneath the surface, however, relations between the university authorities and the students quietly deteriorated. The arrival of the next confrontation was only a matter of time. Ramaphosa and his circle of friends studied hard, evangelized, and developed a wider range of interests. Cyril continued with his legal studies and broadened his political understanding by studying the writings of Robert Subukwe and theorists in the Marxist tradition. His Chiawelo friends, Ishmael Makeba, Griffith Sabala, and Laban Mabasa, all joined him at the university, bolstering his social life and the strength of the SCM at the same time. Laiban Mabasa worked closely with Frank Shikani on the Evangelistic Fellowship. The two men extended the reach of the evangelical programs, setting out to visit every school, college, hospital and village within a hundred kilometers of the university. Mabasa was also active as a playwright and director, winning a prestigious Africa Arts Week award for the year's best play. Nkabela had been unable to accompany Cyril to Turfloop in 1973, because his family did not have the money to pay for his upkeep. Now he became Cyril's hostile neighbor and could observe his friend's phenomenal ability to work. A workaholic himself, Mkabela could get by on very little sleep, but Cyril would always be working when Mkabela went to bed and was already awake again when he rose a few short hours later. Cyril would spend a good deal of time drafting and redrafting strategy documents and agendas and inventing draft constitutions for the SCM and other bodies. Ramaphosa was becoming a gifted manager and administrator, a systems person who could make an organization function smoothly. Emerging as a major figure in the national SCM, 
he became adept at meticulous planning, which allowed him to wield increasing influence on the policy of the national movement. Through the national SEM, moreover, he began to build a network of religious activists from other parts of the country. SEM members include prominent Eastern Cape activists such as Bantu Holomisa and Makanesi Tsofile, many of whom were later to play an important role in the struggle against apartheid. The relationships between SCM and other black consciousness groupings, meanwhile, became increasingly close, so much so that the university authorities later falsely speculated that Frank Shikani was a Sasso leader using entryist techniques to turn the SCM into an instrument of student protest. At this time, almost every activity of the students was politicized. Rule Causa, for example, was a member of a capella choir and would soon become chairman of the Student Choral Society. The choir's once innocent songs became increasingly subversive, containing hidden anti-apartheid and anti-university sentiments that the university authorities were unable to pick up. When students began to write these lyrics on the posters they displayed at protest meetings, the choir was castigated by the university for becoming politicized. Outside his studies and work as a political organizer and Christian, Saul was also very active in the Students' Union, the purely social element of student organization. He still loved Hollywood movies, and his film shows filled the university hall. He was also becoming an enthusiastic entertainer and cook, and had developed growing charm and confidence with women. Ramaphosa and his friends found it hard to reconcile the pleasures of youth with their belief in an all-seeing and austere God. Laibon Mabasa, many years later, told the gathering of his contemporaries that having a child had transformed his understanding of God. Gone was the figure of authority and vengeance that had dominated his youth. In its place was a God who forgave, in the way a father forgives the errors of a daughter. Cyril joked that his view of God had changed too. Whenever he went to meet a woman in the female dormitories at Turflup, he had been sure that an unforgiving God was watching his every move. But later he had come to a realization about the character of his Maker. The things that God finds important are not the things that we think that God finds important. In Laban Mabasa's way of putting it, God is not petty. In the society beyond the black campuses, unseen forces in the international economy were bringing to an end the extended political quiet that had held since 1963. Developing countries like South Africa had been buoyed by a global post-war boom centered on Western Europe, the United States and Japan, which had created a ready market for exports of commodities and finished goods. Three decades of unprecedented economic growth came to an end, however, in 1973, the immediate trigger being a doubling of the oil price by the Organization of Oil-Producing and Exporting Countries, OPEC. The modest gains enjoyed by black workers in South Africa in the 1960s and early 1970s were suddenly reversed. Africans drawn into skilled work in booming manufacturing industries on the Rand in East London and in Natal suddenly had to turn to strike action to protect their gains and fight retrenchments. 
massive strikes involving more than 200,000 black workers in 1973 secured only limited success because of the narrow and localized organizational basis of the trade unions. All the same, this was the precursor of the growth of a radical labor movement that would transform the prospects of the anti-apartheid struggle in the 1980s. A second set of international events had a more immediate and direct impact on the students at Turfloop. The Front for the Liberation of Mozambique, Frelimo, came to power in neighboring Mozambique after a ten-year battle against Portuguese colonial rule. The withdrawal of Portugal from Mozambique and Angola had been precipitated by the collapse of authoritarian government in Lisbon, and it brought the front line of international hostility to Pretoria a little bit closer, giving Frelimo's victory wider political significance. The Black People's Convention, BPC, and SASA decided to hold a series of joint rallies to celebrate Frelimo's triumph and to bring home its significance for the South African struggle. The BPC SASO initiative was based on a new kind of strategy. Rallies were now to flow out from universities into city centers and student organizations were keen to engage workers and wider communities in their protests. Demonstrations were planned for Durban, Cape Town, Port Elizabeth and Johannesburg on the 25th of September 1974. In Turflip, despite the lack of a city to which to march, student organizers decided to join in with a rally of their own. Cyril was by now a prominent figure, chairman of the National SCM, and also now chairman of the Turfloop Sasso branch. This latter appointment was fortuitous, coming as it did after the elevation of then-chairman Pandilani Nefolohodwe to the SRC presidency. Nefolohodwe had instigated a putsch against a conservative SRC leadership, and in the aftermath, he acceded to pressure to relinquish his Sasso chairmanship to Cyril. It is perhaps for this reason that Barney Pajana describes Cyril's rise as the second level of leadership stepping up, following the rustification or harassment of leaders of greater stature. In the face of these threatened national protests, the government was not keen to escalate conflict over the rallies. Nevertheless, its hand was forced by an Afrikaner businessman, Cornelius Kukumur, who threatened that the Durban rally scheduled for the Curry's Fountain Stadium would be violently disrupted by right-wing Afrikaner paramilitaries. In response, Justice Minister Jimmy Kruger announced on the evening of the 24th of September that all BPC and SASO events were declared illegal for the next calendar month. The announcement did nothing to discourage the marchers. The event at Turfloop was formerly an SRC rally, in any event, and so not covered by the SASO-BPC ban. More than a thousand students gathered peacefully in the main hall of the university on the morning of the 25th of September. They listened to speeches about the significance of events in Mozambique and debated their implications for the struggle at home. In the middle of the morning, a convoy of police vans arrived on the campus and parked outside the hall. Police poured from the vans and lined up opposite the entrance. These police were heavily armed, not only with batons and shamboks, whips, used to control protesters, but also with instruments of war, sten guns and 
high-caliber rifles. They brought with them a contingent of savage dogs. Ominously, in an indication of violent intent, an ambulance drove up behind the police vans. On a signal, the police commander, Major J.S. Erasmus, walked into the hall flanked by armed policemen. Through a megaphone, he announced that the rally was illegal and that the students had 15 minutes to disperse. Confronted with the show of force, the student leaders wisely instructed the students to leave and to gather in a field outside the hall. There they sang freedom songs and prepared to disperse to their hostels. As they were leaving, a contingent of male students was attacked by a wave of baton-wielding policemen. The students backed away, but then retaliated by throwing stones at the police. As the violence seemed about to intensify, women students ran back to the scene and demanded that the police desist from attacking the men. At this point, events took a dramatic turn for the worse. Some policemen assaulted the women students, knocking one of them to the ground with a baton blow. Dogs were released and seriously mauled a student. Previously dispersing students now turned around and massed together once again in a dangerous face-off with the armed police. So volatile was the atmosphere that it seemed the police might decide to shoot their way out of the campus. However, Major Erasmus instead released students who'd been detained before making an orderly retreat. Elsewhere around the country, violence also broke out at rallies. In Durban, whip-wielding police and dogs savaged dozens of student protesters. Behind the scenes, government was preparing to take decisive action. A countrywide sweep was unleashed in which more than 200 activists were detained by security police under the Riotous Assemblies Act and under the General Law Amendment Act, which allowed extended detention without trial. The police netted almost the entire leadership core of the black consciousness movement in this single fell sweep. Many of those arrested were later to become household names. Aubrey Mokwapi, Gilbert Sedibi, Seth Scooper, Strini Mudley, Solly Ismail, Barney Pijana, and Mosia Terra Lakota. These leaders were to be prosecuted in what was to become known as the Black Consciousness Trial or the Sasso Trial, which commenced in February 1975. At the University of the North, the vacation was extended in the hope that tempers would cool. On the return of the students, however, the security police arrested the remaining political heavyweights on the campus, SRC President Gabriel Kuanda Sedibi, and the turf loop-based national president of SASO, Pandelani Nefolo Hodwe, universally known as NEF. These two were part of the leadership core of the black consciousness movement, figures senior to Cyril in years, authority and political experience. Ramaphosa was not at this stage under threat of arrest. Nefolohovdwe observes that Cyril was not a big fish in black consciousness and only the big fishes were arrested initially. The vulnerability of the entire leadership to arrest was testimony to the political inexperience of student leaders at this early stage in the political unrest of the 1970s. What followed only confirmed this inexperience the student body decided to march to the police station and demand the release of 
Nefolo Hodwe and Sidibe. Cyril, as chairman of the Sasso branch, was now at the head of the march. Members of the SRC were already inside the station trying to present a memorandum to the station commander. Very soon, almost the entire student body was assembled outside the police station. Cyril stood in the crowd with Hope Mudao, by now his partner. Ahash descended as the most senior policeman, Major Cyril Stradom, emerged from the building with a megaphone. Some witnesses recall Stradom asking if members of the SRC were present. Then he asked, Where is Cyril Ramaphosa? Cyril's friend gestured to him to keep quiet, but instead he fearlessly stepped forward. He was taken into the police station, where he found members of the SRC seated in a circle. Stradom said, Cyril Ramaphosa is under arrest, before turning to the members of the SRC and dismissing them. They scuttled off without protesting at Ramaphosa's detention. Ramaphosa was thereby arrested under Section 6 of the Terrorism Act. He was bundled into the back of the police station and was to spend the next 11 months behind bars in solitary confinement.